Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by playwright and screenwriter Tom Morton Smith, whose credits include the seminal play Oppenheimer and the recent production of My Neighbor Totoro at the Barbican. Hello, Tom. Thanks for joining us today. Hello. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm really pleased to be able to talk to you for a number of reasons. One, I watched my neighbor Totoro at the Barbican, had a fantastic time. I was one of those people who, you know, got wind of the performance and was sort of just sort of like looking at dates and waiting for tickets to go on sale. And I, I think I booked my tickets back in May and then ended up seeing the show back in sort of November. So mm-hmm. um, sort of a long time coming and I was very excited to watch. But uh, a couple of our recent podcasts have also mentioned watching the show. We've had filmmakers Colin Trevorrow on and, and more recently Joe Cornish, and both of whom um, went to the show and, and, and were big fans of it. So, uh, so yeah, so you're amongst friends. Welcome to the yeah. podcast. <laughs> Thank you. It takes a long time to put on a play, and I, I imagine there's lots of even more time sort of behind the scenes that we're not privy to. But mm. what's it like, you know, when the show was actually on and you were sort of hearing from friends, colleagues, peers, maybe people you admire, uh, you know, are all sort of joined together by, by Totoro? Yeah, it's... Um... I mean, the, it was in development for a long time, which I think you you know is unsurprising, given the um, the nature of the project and um, who who was involved. It um, I first pitched it to the RSC. We, we were talking about it in 2015, and then it wasn't until 2018 where um, I was able to start writing it, uh, having got secured the rights from Studio Ghibli and. Uh, Joe was on board, um, Joe Hisashi, the composer. And then it was delayed by the pandemic because it was originally supposed to go on in 2021. And throughout all of this, when, especially during lockdown, when you're working on it and you're only really meeting people and talking about it via Zoom, it kind of didn't ever feel real. It always kind of felt, and it was the sort of thing that I wasn't allowed to talk about either. So it was just, yeah, it, it just felt like, yeah, I'm working on a Studio Ghibli um, stage adaptation of My Neighbor Totoro and Jim Henson's are doing the puppets and it's going to go on at the Barbican and it's with the Royal Shakespeare Company and Phelan McDermott's directing and we've got Basil Twist designing the puppets and, and none of this feels real. None of it ever feels real um, until suddenly uh, you're there in um, Stratford-upon-Avon rehearsing and someone brings out a giant furry Totoro puppet to play with um and then again when you're sat amongst the audience at the barbican on like the the opening night and the lights go down and um the music starts up and suddenly you're looking around and there are people dressed in um totoro merch cosplayers there as well you kind of go oh yeah this is a real thing that's happening bloody hell (laughs) so um yeah it was a long time coming but it for a lot of that it didn't feel like it was a real thing at all 
The film is beloved. It's very well known. Um, it is under 90 minutes, you know, so we're big fans of the My Never Totoro uh, movie as well. Um, but I think in terms of sort of, you know, the IP, it's it's sort of up there with like Star Wars and Marvel, you know, like it's this household recognizable character that, you know, as we record, I've got my, my Totoro plushie behind me um, as, as well. You know, like it's, uh, the, I guess, just, you know, how recognizable uh, it is and how beloved it is. You know, this is a, it's a big thing to work on. It, it must have been quite a, a daunting under taking yeah i think um when you're given the opportunity to um to work with somewhere like the rsc it's always it's always my opinion of well you know they're like the biggest theater company in the world so you've got to go all in when they asked me to pitch the biggest thing i could think of i pitched them oppenheimer (laughs) and you know they in fact they, they asked, come and pitch the biggest thing. We want big ideas. Pitch is the biggest thing you can think of. And I pitched them an eight-play play cycle on the history of physics in the 20th century. And they went, okay, that's too big. <laughs> <laughs> so, when they, so when they said, um, and then, then I kind of wrote Oppenheimer, a big kind of Shakespearean uh, play about the building of the atomic bomb. And, you know, it was um, massive in scope uh, with a cast of 22, um, with singing and dancing and all kinds of stuff and a lot of physics. Um, and... After that was, um, you know, that was a success. It moved into the West End and they said, have you got a family show in you? And I go, well, I'm going to go big again. I'm going to go one of the most recognizable characters in certainly Japanese culture and kind of in world culture and animation. And oh, right, uh, my neighbor Totoro, can you get the rights for that? You're the Royal Shakespeare Company. It sounds like the sort of thing you'd be able to do. <laughs> and they went, great, we'll give it a go. We're very lucky that at the same sort of time, Joe Hisaishi, the composer, I think he'd been harboring the idea of, of Totoro on stage for a while. And and he just went, yeah, the guys who did Matilda, yeah, they want to do Totoro, brilliant. And the fact that he had all this um, uh, music that was written for the film and wasn't used meant that we had strong reason for putting it on stage. You kind of went, well, let's expand the world in the way that... Um, you know, there's all this music that um, that the fans don't know exists to some extent, and and we can spend some real time with the characters. You watch a Ghibli film, and and they're so beautiful that you just kind of want to dive in. So yeah, let's get let's give a, a, an audience that experience of being able to just exist in the same space as a cat bus for a while, because what more fun could there possibly be? It's a, it was a resounding success, and and you know I think like it's for everybody you know the puppeting department, the actors, the lighting, the music is so wonderful, and and the bands mm. that play and the singer that you have, and uh, you know I I um, I only got to go and see it once, but I would I would I wish I got to go and see it again. It was always sort of like it was sort of as close you know to going to like a Ghibli like rock and roll concert or something because you know you're mm. just like I want to see I want to see Totoro I want to see the cat bus you know and yeah. uh, oh they're playing the theme again Ball. yes yeah all the hits. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you're a you're a professional writer um, for sort of stage and, and, and screen, and, and we're a podcast about runtimes. So I did want to just ask you about your relationship, I guess, with you know the length of of your work. And this is a very like I don't <laughs> think you get asked this question on any other podcast. But but do you think about you know like the, how long the finished piece might be, and, and and does that sort of I guess come into into the fore when you're thinking of things like pacing and and, and structure? Yeah, I think uh, when I wrote Oppenheimer. The first read-through we did on the first day of rehearsals when we had the full cast, it was it was nearly five hours, which is too, too long. Um, and even um, during the preview period when it was um, 
running up in Stratford, it was three and a half hours. And um, we put a lot of cuts in and we said to the actors, look, we need to make more cuts. We need to get it under three hours. And they said, no, no, don't cut anymore. We don't want to lose any more lines. We'll just say it quicker. <laughs> and so, so during the preview pro period, they shaved 25 minutes off just by talking quicker, which is great. And um, and then when I kind of came to to write my next play, my next big play, which was, it was called Ravens. It was about the Spassky Fisher uh, 1972 World Chess Championship. And, um, and, I, and the script must have been 40 pages shorter than Oppenheimer. And I went, great, this is a, this is a, a two hour play, hour in the first half, hour in the second, that's fine. And then by the time it was actually on, it seemed to have expanded and there was nothing in the writing that made it expand. It was just the way that it was, um, it, it just happened. It just ended up being uh, two and a half hours. And I went, oh God, right, Totoro. I'm writing Totoro. This is the shortest two act play I've ever written. It's like 60, 70 pages. There's no way that this is a three hour play. And then it's just, so I can't help myself no matter what I do. I seem to write three hour plays or two and a half hour plays and I'm trying, I'm trying so hard to get the run time down all the time. <laughs> Sometimes things just need to be as long as they are, you know, and I guess scene transitions and setup and musical sort of interludes and all that sort of stuff. They they yeah, they they, yeah. they add on. <laughs> yeah. And it takes a long time to inflate a totoro. Uh, so you need, <laughs> you need some stage business to kind of cover that up whilst the scene change is going on. So I'm imagining one of those old, you know, sort of like car pumps that you use your foot um, on. So there's just one person frantically sort of kicking a pump. Oh, no. In industrial fans hidden all over the Barbican. And obviously they couldn't be, because they're quite loud, they couldn't be near too near the stage. So there's piping going around everywhere to inflate um, the first lying down Totoro that you see. Um, the the tube that kind of comes up through the stage to kind of inflate it, uh, that that snaked its way through the Barbican Centre to, to a generator to kind of blow it up. It's ridiculous stuff going on backstage for, for a play that is quite meditative and feels quite gentle. Um, it's just, it's a, it's a fury backstage. It's, it's like the, um, it's the old thing about the swan and its legs, it's serene on top, but underneath it's kind of kicking away, trying to keep afloat. <laughs> Yeah. That's testament, I think, to everybody involved. Yeah, it felt, it felt very chill in the auditorium, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like everyone's dripping sweat by the end of it, just to kind of make this very zen, very peaceful kind of piece of theatre, and everyone's just knackered every night. That's show business. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where when it comes to you know, maybe a night off, do you ever think about the runtime of, of, of what you're watching? Does that come into uh, into play when you're choosing a movie, or, or is that really not important? <laughs> No, it does. It depends on my mood. Like, um, I think if you're going to sit down and watch um, a three-hour epic, then um, then you have to be in the right frame of mind. But you know, also it depends on the the actual film. I mean, it, it's a different proposition sitting down to watch three or four hours of The Irishman or um, or three hours of Seven Samurai to watching Avengers Endgame, for example. You know, they may be the same length, but they don't, you know, um, they require different parts of your um, of you as an audience. So um, there are there are some films that you can kind of just let wash over you 
Um, I think um, I've got a toddler and we're watching lots of family films at the moment um, together. I'm amazed at how long Mary Poppins is. Mary Poppins is an epic. It's like Ben-Hur, but it doesn't feel like that um, when you're watching it because, um, and I hope that's what we got with um, the stage version of Totoro, is that um, is that if you're engaged and if you're enjoying it, then the, the running time doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, but then again, some stories just need 90 minutes and can feel long at 90 minutes if it's if it's padded out or it doesn't or it doesn't flow. So it's it's all a question of what you want to watch, how you want to engage with it. Sometimes you can you can look at something and go, yeah, great, 90 minute film. And then it feels like five hours of your life has gone by because it's not very good. Oh, yeah, I hear that. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, especially like looking at runtime sort of podcast, just, you know, the, the, the story, the runtime serving the story. And, and sometimes it needs four hours to breathe and pull you in and build the world. And sometimes it needs, you know, 60 minutes. And, and I do appreciate, you know, when, when a filmmaker gets that right, you know, whether it be matching the four hour story with the four hour film or the 90 minute story with the 90 minute film. But the issue is if they match the 90 minute story with the four hour film. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm um, looking at films for when you, when you asked me to kind of come up with a film for this and I, I was um, looking at the runtimes of some of my favorite films and they're much longer than I remember them being. And I think that has to do with the fact that because I'm enjoying myself, I'm having such a great time that they don't feel that length. Um, and I was so delighted when I found, I looked at Bill and Ted and it was 90 minutes on. Yes, finally, good. <laughs> <laughs> Bang on. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was wondering when, when I, we were talking about doing this and, and uh, you suggested a film, you know, was, was Bill and Ted your, your sort of first port of call or did you explore any other ideas? Because of the nature of my career, I think um, also during the pandemic, I've been moving more into writing for screen. So I've been trying to watch as many films over the past couple of years as I possibly can, just to kind of give my you know, fill in the gaps of my education in, in, in some way. I was looking at the, th the, the films that other people had done and there's um, there's some serious kind of art house films I could have picked, um, uh, some Ingmar Bergman, or I was kind of, um, you know, working on Totoro. I was um, watching an awful lot of Japanese films from the 1950s. Um, so I was going, oh, I could talk about a Yasujiro Uzo film or one of the shorter Kurosawas. But, um, but I think... In the spirit of what you want from a 90-minute film, Bill and Ted's, it's just so it's just fun. And it's it's an hour and a half of silliness, darkness, and ridiculously overinflated stakes. Two rock and rolling teens on the verge of failing their class are approached by a man in a time machine who helps them make the ultimate history presentation. Very short and sweet. It's to the point. This is a 1989 uh, American science fiction comedy. I love that. I love that fusion. Um, written by Chris Matheson and, and Ed Solomon, who are sort of the gatekeepers for the characters, and directed by Stephen Herrick, um, and stars, you know, I guess in very iconic performances, Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter as uh, the titular Bill and Ted, and uh, and then George Carlin as Rufus, who's a great great character, and and, and I mean, a huge cast, but those are probably the biggest names here. This film was a hit, spawned a sequel and, 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 and a cartoon series and all sorts of stuff in the in the early 90s. And then they brought the characters back more recently uh, for Bill and Ted Face the Music in 2020. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, because um, I, I, I um, kind of grew up in the 90s, I remember the animated TV show. And I might have watched the, anima the, the 
cartoon before I watched the actual film. But the, f- the film was off and on on a weekend on TV. And um, it has that sort of Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon sort of, uh, it's raining outside, so I'll watch Bill and Ted because that's on ITV or something. It's got that feel about it. I think what what feeds into that is like the um, the stock footage they use. Like if, when you go back to um, the Napoleonic Wars and they've got um, some stock, which is, you watch it now and you go, that clearly wasn't shot for this film. It's from Barry Lyndon or something. Um, it, the, the expansion it has is that you've got these very, uh, not cheaply, but, you know, basically shot kind of stuff. Um, and then there's just this, <laughs> this Napoleonic war epic kind of stuff in, into, into cut. And the, uh, you get the same in the medieval period as well, the kind of shots of the castle and you know, think, I don't think that's done specifically for this movie. Because it's this sort of like slacker comedy. It's very identifiable. It's very, I guess, similar to sort of the setup of something like Back to the Future as well. Um, and it's sort of playing, you know, like time travel doesn't need to be that highfalutin, you know. They, they sort of wave away how they do it and, and they travel around in a in a sort of an American style phone box, uh, maybe a little Doctor Who reference. But yeah, it feels, it's, it's got this sort of like irreverent feel. But then they do go to great lengths to sort of recreate the, the historical setting as they travel through time. And we might see, a, you know, a Grecian temple or a medieval castle and uh, and yeah, I do love that sort of like cheeky use of in- intercutting old old footage, and they like look off screen. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, <well, laughs> Cuts to something completely yeah. different. <laughs> I think um, apparently the, the 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 writers have said that it's not it's a completely accidental Doctor Who reference that they weren't aware of Doctor Who when they were writing it because why would they? They were American and they were they were young at the time. Um, it was more the fact that Back to the Future had just come out and they'd originally. Um, had it uh, set in a time-traveling, like, stoner van. And and so they went, well, we can't use a vehicle. That's far too much like Back to the Future, so we'll put them in a phone box. And then no one told them that it was <laughs> big off Doctor Who. The thing I, I really love about it is that it keeps the historical figures that they meet. You know, it doesn't suddenly have, uh, you know, Napoleon's always speaking French. Socrates is always speaking ancient Greece. Um, it does it doesn't kind of say, here we go back in time, here's Joan of Arc, and she speaks um, in an RP accent or something. And so a lot of the comedy with those characters and their interaction with uh, the modern world as it was then, is, is the comedy is quite visual. Um, and that kind of culture clash isn't someone going, hey, this is crazy, what's this? It's kind of, you know, it's more... Um, how does Napoleon um, kind of interact with a with a giant in a bowl of ice cream? And what would Joan of Arc do if she stumbled across an aerobics class? It's kind of it never it never discusses the um, the differences between the modern world and those characters. It just lets those characters explore it. Um, and like Genghis Khan in a sports equipment shop is of course he'd use it like an arsenal and he'd kind of be trying out baseball bats and skateboards and armor and and the fact that the comedy comes from all those visuals um you know that that's what i love about it it's um it's just daft it's just taking something uh two things that kind of shouldn't exist in the same space and finding a reason to put them there 
the juxtaposition i think with bill and ted are the least qualified people to do a historical sort of time travel they have no idea who they're meeting they can't pronounce the people's names yeah, i love so beef great. oven yeah. i love so great <laughs> um but that, in a way though that naivety is really important and it, it you know it's uh it, it's great it's like that it sort of puts them at a level <laughs> with the historical figures in present day mm. uh as well and and, and I, I think that they're, they're sort of like it's a winning formula and and they're so charming talking about sort of lengths of films earlier i would say this is a quick 90 minutes because because it's such an easy film to watch and it's so enjoyable um it does sort of zip along and and i think this is one of those films where you know if it was on tv halfway through i would just sit down and watch the whole thing if someone said bill and ted i'd go yeah you know i just sort of drop what i'm doing because i know it's an enjoyable place to be uh, and that's that's cinema magic yeah i think there's i'm sure i read somewhere online that the original cut was two and a half hours and edited it down to 90 minutes and you think there's an hour's worth of more bill and ted out there god what's that um all lost to the you know lost in time now but you know, the thing is, is that the characters are so recognizable. You like you, you really kind of latch onto them very quickly. They don't need Bill and Ted themselves don't need much of an introduction. Um, you see them; they're an open book. You know who they are straight away. You know it's kind of ridiculous that they're that this um, the overinflated stakes of it, but the the, the fate of the um, of the or the future, uh, this utopian ideal, um, is entirely based on. These two goofballs history report is um it's kind of brilliant that it's it I feel like there was a note at some point um from a producer said the stakes aren't high enough. And they said, well, the the the, the future of the entire world rests on it. Fine. I mean, their philosophy, if you can call it that, it feels very Winnie the Poohish, that it's just kind of just be, just be yourself and be excellent. And that's all they are. And there's no bad guys in it particularly. Um, and the, the, the stakes for, um, for Ted is obviously that he'll go to military school if he fails this. But there aren't that, the same stakes for Bill. It's just that his, something bad would happen to his friend. And I think that's, that's so charming. You don't get to see an exploration of um, friendship that often on film. And they're very uncomplicated in their in their relationship. It's kind of to the point where they're pretty interchangeable. And I think uh, Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter both said that they couldn't often they couldn't remember which one was playing which. Yeah, I think it's a really good um, representation of like a friendship on screen. And we don't often see a film that's purely about friendship. It's you know friends in the face of the end of the world, or you know friends doing this, or or you know like a, a subplot maybe. But but they they just love being around each other. You know they love failing together. They love being in a band where neither of them can actually play an instrument. That I love that that is the through line as well. Like they they can't split the band up. You know uh, they Keanu Reeves shouldn't go to military school because they split the band up. Um, and they they're making music videos yet they do not know how to play an instrument. <laughs> yeah, and they've got this idea that um oh in order to be a success we just need to get Eddie Van Halen to join the band <laughs> okay but we can't do that if we don't have a kick-ass music video we can't do that because we can't make a music video because we can't play our instruments it's just yeah they're so, they're so beautifully naive um and so without malice as well um I mean there's one there's there's only one joke in it that comes from a place of malice, which is this weird um incongruous um homophobic bit where they kind of they're they're celebrating that Ted isn't dead at one point and they hug and then they they're they're 
they call each other, you know, a slur. And that it feels so, it really kicked me out of it because not only is it kind of offensive for, for but now, and you could kind of say, oh, well, it was a different time. But it's the only joke that kind of comes from a, from a place of calling someone a name or kind of um, being mean to someone. And that j- it just doesn't feel right with their character at all. Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan. Gentlemen, I'm here to help you with your history report. What? Bill, what? Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. Dudes, you guys are gonna go back in time. Yeah! You are going to have a most excellent adventure through history. Who are you guys? We're you, dude! You sort of mentioned maybe watching the cartoon before seeing Bill and Ted, but do you remember, you know, sort of when you did first see this film and 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 how, sort of how has it stuck with you as as you know as as, as the work of, of Bill and Ted sort of influenced your own career in in any way? <laughs> um, I think I must have seen it on TV the first time. Sorry, I was too young to see it in the cinema, um, and a lightness that I hope that I carry into my work is things that you kind of where it acknowledges that it's daft and that what it's asking you to do and what it's um asking where where it's asking the audience to suspend its disbelief it's kind of it it kind of does it with a sort of wink and a nudge in a kind of look we know this is ridiculous they don't try to explain how time travel works it's not interstellar they're not trying to kind of go this happens and this happens and these are the rules and if you go back here and you change time you know it's not it's not even going to into as much detail as like back to the future does um into the mechanics of time travel and it doesn't matter because that's not what the film's about and rather than kind of try and balance some logic with what's happening it just goes, the logic doesn't matter. It's okay. Just this is this is what we need to do to tell the story. And um, it's like there's that brilliant moment where um, in the medieval period where um, uh, Ted falls down the, down the stairs of the castle in a full suit of armor and Bill looks down and he sees Ted get stabbed with a sword. And you can see, you can feel like the the, the resistance that, that that soldier's sword has as it goes, and you know someone's in that in that suit of armor, and so Bill thinks that Ted's dead, and um, Bill's kind of you know, oh no, you're dead, you know, um, and then Ted just appears behind and says, no, I fell out of the suit of armor. <laughs> you go, how do you fall out of a suit of armor? You're entirely encased, but it. <laughs> And, I, and, and you saw where the sword went in that someone was in that suit of armor. But it doesn't matter because it's just kind of, yeah, fine, I fell out and no one noticed. All the people in that kitchen, in that room, um, who kind of went, oh, someone's just fallen down the stairs, didn't see a fully grown man kind of tumble out of a suit of armor. You know, it's, I think, the, the daftness and the lightness with which it kind of acknowledges that it's telling a story is great. It comes back in the end as well when they're kind of having one of my favorite moments in the film is when they're stood outside the police station and they're, tr- they're waiting to kind of, they're trying to come up with a plan to break 
all these historical figures out of jail. And they say, well, we'll just, why don't we go back in time and steal my dad's keys and leave them behind this sign? And I go, that's a great idea. We must remember to do that. And they go and look behind the sign and there are the keys. Great. That wouldn't work in in any any kind of time travel film that spent too much time explaining how time travel works. It wouldn't work in Back to the Future. It wouldn't work in, in anything else. So it's kind of just, it's delightfully kind of saying to the audience, let's just get on to the next bit, shall we? Eh? It's a delightful sort of hand wave, isn't it? Like just, uh, you don't need to notice. It's, it'd be too complicated. You don't need to see us, whatever. I, I, I sort of like, I really appreciate that brevity. And you just go with it because the characters don't question it. So why should we? You know, of course, the keys are there. They, they, they do. I do like that. They sort of pays off the, where's my keys? Where's my keys? That um, Ted's dad's talking about uh, sort of earlier on in the film. Uh, and then, you just, and they, then they start to use that sort of quite a lot. Yeah, there's, there's, um, there's some really nice seeding of ideas like the keys from earlier on and you have that scene with rufus outside the um the convenience store in the car park where the kind of uh, the two timelines of the film kind of intersect so you have the same scene twice at different parts of the, the film from, told from a different point and bill and ted meet their um future selves very briefly it's it's just it's really pleasingly clever and it's not it's not too clever. It's just really satisfying to kind of go, I know that scene's going to come up and here it is. And they do it really well. And the joke's like, um, you didn't, you were, didn't wind your watch. Oh, I must remember to, to remind myself to wind my, and you know it doesn't work because it didn't work. So it's just, it's really gently clever, which I like about it. Yeah. It's not sort of showing off how clever it is or, or, or that. It's just sort of like, it's ingrained in the film. But um, I think the reason why we like it is because actually, you know, it's built on a, a foundation, you know, of, of logic, you know, but it just doesn't want to sort of like bamboozle us with it, you know, like there's, there's a very simple rule <laughs> throughout the film. And on that, we can play around with it. We can have some fun. We can make a lot of jokes and, 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 and we can go on, on this sort of quest narrative. And I do think the, I do love how they lay the stakes out as sort of ridiculous as they are at the beginning. If you fail history, you'll get kicked out of school and all this sort of business. So the most important thing overnight is that they need to pass the history uh, presentation. And, and you know, that, that, that if it was any other question in their history class, like Bill and Ted would not be able to use a time machine to fix it. But the fact that the question is, you know, how would four historical figures respond to modern day Sandemus? Like that, 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 that just works. And I, and I sort of love that. It's so easygoing. Oh, there's just, there's just, I think the fact that it kind of, um, it, it, not that it revels in stupidness. It's, it's not, it's not stupidity and it's, it's, it's silliness. And, and that's quite different. Um, like we've lost Napoleon. Where would Napoleon go? He would go to the water park because it's called Waterluge. <laughs> and he does. And that's where he is. And the fact that that kind of ridiculous logic, logical leap that Bill and Ted make pays off why not because it's just funny to see napoleon down you know at a water park kind of going down a water slide well in terms of like the runtime it's it's just like you know it's quite a tight 90 minute film but they do spend probably a couple of minutes with napoleon in this lovely montage of him getting to know how a water slide works and then like pushing kids out the way and he's wearing this ridiculous you know like old-timey bathing suits yeah, which way did he <laughs> but, get the majesty's underwear or do you always carry some bathing costume with him? 
And I, there's a little detail. I think even on the bathing suit, he's still wearing like a French flag or a pin or something. It's like, oh, that's, yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. You know, yeah, yeah, chef's yeah. kiss uh, yeah. to that. But I think all of the characters, I, I love the, the the people playing the historical figures. I guess they're almost like, you know, sort of like a, an automaton you might see at Disneyland. Like they do one thing, the one thing they're really well known for, and they don't really break from that, but they, they'll they sort of do that in a modern day setting. So Napoleon at the water park or Genghis Khan at the sports store, as you, you say. And I, I do think there's this, I, I love the sort of third act where they're all in the mold together and you start seeing them pair up with each other. Um, and, and they sort of start going around. You see Beethoven at the keyboard shop. Oh, that way he goes full Jean-Michel Jarre, doesn't he? He's great. Um, I I also I particularly love and because I think like the idea that Freud is really bad at chatting up women, I think it's just it's just very funny. And there's that there's a sequence where Billy the Kid and Socrates, of all people who have turned up, decide to hit on a couple of girls. <laughs> and then Freud comes over and cock blocks them completely because he's such a nerd. And <laughs> Socrates, who's who's a who's an old man in a in a token kind of in a mall, who would be the, the creepiest thing you've ever seen <laughs> kind of hitting on two young girls. Um, the fact that he's kind of, uh, you know, considers himself such a ladies' man that Freud could come over and kind of ruin his chances. <laughs> it's, just, it's just, yeah, it's delightfully silly. Yeah, I, I think and it, it, the, the tone is, is is really key. Like, I think if, if it was you know, even sillier, it might not have worked. Or if they were a bit more irreverent, it might not have worked. But I, I do think that's the, the masterstroke of the film. Like, the balances are just right, which is quite hard to, to strike, I think. I think even with, like, how Bill and Ted are played, like, their language... Yeah, it might put some people off, or, or but it, but it, but it works. It works for the characters. All of the bodaciouses and excellent, and 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 the way they speak, you know, is is uh, is, is is actually just quite charming. And I really like how none of the historical figures are like, why do you speak like this? <laughs> why are you dressed the way you are? Like everyone is very accepting of who people are in the film. The way that they speak in that slightly heightened. Um, I mean, obviously, it's got that sort of Californian Valley sort of uh, recognizable accent, but. Bill and Ted also have pretensions and they hold themselves up to be, um, you know, they use longer words than they perhaps know what they are. And um, the the way they introduce themselves as um, Ted Theodore Lelder and Bill S. Preston Esquire, they're trying to build themselves up as, as important people. And they that's incredibly charming as well. Because I, mean, I think that they're, they're actually a lot smarter than they're presented. Like there's a bit where they go back to prehistoric times and fix a time machine out of bubble gum and <laughs> pudding pots, and you go, well, you know. They, and then there's that that one of the good bits in the um, in the presentation at the end, where they're kind of showing a bit of each of the historical figures, and Freud's giving Ted um, an in-depth kind of psychological kind of um, evaluation, and then he uh, offers. Uh, Bill to kind of come and sit on the couch and Bill says, no, I'm fine. I've just got a small Oedipal complex. <laughs> the fact that, he, that he's not not only aware of that, but um, but knows the right term is just, you know, that's a good joke. It lands really well. Hi, guys. Hi, Missy. I mean, Mom. Uh, Miss Preston, we'd like you to meet some of our friends. Yeah, this is uh, Dave Beethoven. Ah, she seems so sure, madame. And, uh, <laughs> Maxine of Arc, Missy, Herman the Kid, Bob Genghis Khan, Socrates Johnson, <laughs> De Dennis Froude, 
and uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln. Well, it's nice to meet you all. There's sodas in the fridge. They do a big sort of presentation at the end where they show off the historical figures to uh, to the history teacher and the whole school. It's unlike any history presentation I've ever seen. It looks like they're playing a rock concert, but, but I love the detail. And I also love that at that point, their parents are all sort of standing at the back of the room because of the, the furore that's happened just before at the police station. So Ted's dad gets to see the therapy session and... Bill's stepmom gets to see him say, and his dad gets to see him say about the Edible complex. Yeah, it's cool. What was that? <laughs> uh, but also, you have a fantastic fourth wall break as well from Abraham Lincoln, where he just looks down the barrel of the camera and goes, "Party on, dude!" You get to the end, and yeah, it's a it's a ridiculously overblown, um, unrealistic history presentation. Um, where um, where did the lighting states come from? Where did the smoke machines come from? And, uh, how did that all get organized? <laughs> but you just go with it because that's what the film needs at that point. Yeah, I think by then they could have been, we'll get our future selves to leave a choreographed lighting machine and a smoke machine on stage. Yeah. And like, fine, <laughs> get it. Do it. You don't need to tell us. We believe you. Um, I do. And it's just got that great payoff of, I guess it's like a Muppets film where, you know, they're putting on a show and we get to see Bill and Ted pull off the best history presentation <laughs> in, in, you know, in, in, in the world. And, and I love, you know, that all of their, there's no like, cliques in the school we don't sort of see jocks and cheerleaders and nerds or, or anything like everybody's just very accepting and uh, and they're all in it for this history presentation again it's sort of like this lovely uh, unity uh, amongst their uh, their peers yeah i think there's i think the snippets you see of the other students history things there's one guy who um doesn't know what he's doing and he just kind of comes out uh, he's a sort of jock character who kind of goes uh, San Dimas football rules and gets a massive round of applause and then you've got this other girl who's obviously thought very hard about it and is talking about Mary Antoinette and said instead of let them eat cake now it's let them eat McDonald's or whatever it is <laughs> it's kind of it shows that the other ones are you know that they're obviously you know are held as being better than um, than Bill and Ted are still a bit crap. So it's actually quite a low bar that they have to pass, which is, you know, and of course getting, um, even if the audience don't realize they're the real historical figures, even if they think they're just a bunch of actors that they got dressed up, um, it's still a much better presentation than all the others. We've talked to sort of a, about a few scenes that have stuck with us, but is there, you know, sort of one scene which is, is your, by, you know, your standout favorite uh, in the film? Yeah, I, I think it's probably, I mean, the mall sequence is just so beautifully pitched. Um, and weirdly, it's the one, it's one of the scenes that doesn't have Bill or Ted in, but it's just that um, from the point of Genghis Khan in the in the sports equipment place, uh, Joan of Arc doing her um, aerobics class, and Beethoven being introduced to all these kind of uh, modern synthesizers and things, the way that's cut and the way that's edited and the way that it builds to them all getting arrested, that's my favorite bit because it, it's a kind of um, brilliant montage set to this um, synth pop rendition of Beethoven that is just, you know, that's the thing that you kind of, you take away from it and you kind of, um, and in some ways that's the, in, in that you see find the thesis of what the film is um, thematically about kind of the idea of what these great historical figures would make of our consumerist um, society. That's the standout for me. 
And have you, did you stay with the series? Did you then go and watch Bogus Journey? And, and have you caught up uh, with the most recent uh, installment, Face to Music? Yeah, I think Bogus Journey is equally good. And I think what I love about Bogus Journey as a sequel is that it chooses to do something completely different in that it doesn't go back to time travel, which it so easily could. And then it takes us on a more um, metaphysical kind of place where we meet death and we go to hell and we go to heaven. And uh, the fact that, that, that it takes these characters but throws out the concept of the first film, I think is, is I'd say if it was being made now, that that's an incredibly brave thing to do because I, I, I'm not sure that you'd be able to say, um, here's a Bill and Ted sequel, um, but it's not got time travel in, um, and actually we go to heaven and hell rather than into the past. The the producers I imagine now would say, well, let's take them to the future, or you know, you have the introduction of the character of Death, who is, and it's riffing on the Seventh Seal, which is brilliant that they um, that they beat him at battleships or Twister or, or whatever it is. It's like challenging them to a game of chess, but no, we'll do just <laughs> we'll bring out all these other board games. I, yeah, I think the most recent one though delightful to kind of return to those characters it it doesn't it doesn't reach the same heights but i don't think it's really trying to i think it is just um it's, it's there to um to massage your nostalgia muscle and is perfectly fine because of it I'm sort of surprised it's taken this long to come in, but uh, you know, here we are, uh, 100 episodes in. We've got Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Very glad to have it. If I if I could give you, you know, as part of our film festival, if we could sort of give you a venue and a print of the film, and then a blank check to maybe you know, dress it up and and theme it around Bill and Ted, is there anything you'd like to bring into the space where we would screen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? I think what the perfect setting for it would be to do it in a mall. So you do it in a mall on a big screen projected, introduced by Keanu and Alex, clearly, and uh, make sure there are um, Ziggy pigs for everyone. You know, everyone gets to have um, ice, you know, gets to bloat themselves on ice cream beforehand. Um, and then you have, after the, the film's done, you have a massive rave um, with Beethoven on, on the keyboards and you just trash the place. And, and then you don't tidy up, and the next day you show Dawn of the Dead. Um, I think that would be that would be the best way to see this film. I love that a rock and roll concert in a shopping mall, bringing in the food. Um, I love the the Ziggy Piggy badge that Napoleon owns yeah. from his uh, yeah, eating the, the, the giant portion. Other medals. <laughs> <laughs> so we everyone can get a badge for eating a giant ice cream. Um, oh, I think that would be a lot of fun. And it is a film that needs to be seen with an audience as well. I think that's the argument as well to put this on the big screen. It'll be so much fun with a crowd. There are some big belly laughs in it, and they, that deserves to be in front of an audience. Hundred yeah. uh, percent. Agree. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for talking to us today and, and for bringing Bill and Ted into the podcast. Uh, it was uh, it was it was really great to chat, and and I'm really glad that we've got Bill and Ted here. And, and also, thank you for entertaining so many people with uh, my neighbour Totoro most recently. I'm really excited to see what you're working on next. Yeah, so am I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice so you'll never miss an episode. 
You can also leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and if you have a moment, why not share an episode with your friends? Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. Enjoy those shorter films, folks. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.